The future is prosperous and sustainable. Step into the Building Good podcast with Jen Hancock and Tim Coldwell. Discover how business and community leaders are building a better world through community activation, inclusive cultures, and climate leadership. Good day. Today's topic is diversity, equity, and inclusion. This topic is especially pertinent considering at the time of recording, we're about two weeks into the Black Lives Matter protests happening in the U.S. and across the globe. This protest has elevated diversity, equity, and inclusion to a global conversation, and it's clear that not just awareness, but action is required in order for us to move forward. We want to acknowledge the importance of the Black Lives Matter movement and the conversations that are underway and are ourselves looking at ways we can take action to help. But in our discussion today, we're actually going to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the building and design industry. So data shows that when companies are reflective of the communities they serve with greater levels of diversity, especially in leadership positions, they do achieve better performance. So with that in mind, and to discuss this idea further, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Renee Cheng, Dean of the College of Built Environments at the University of Washington. So Renee is an advocate for equity in the field of architecture and has been honored twice as one of the top 25 most admired design educators in the United States by Design Intelligence, an organization that ranks architecture and design schools across the U.S. Renee was also a significant contributor to the Guides for Equitable Practice. Welcome, Renee, and thanks so much for taking time to be with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be able to talk about this with your audience. Great. So I'm curious, just to kind of dive right in. So as you're a woman of color in architecture and academia worlds, you've worked with a variety of academic institutions, companies, clients, industry organizations like American Institute of Architects, the AGC, the, which is the Associated General Contractors of America. You have a pretty broad view. Tell us, how diverse do you see the building and design industry? Well, if you just look at demographics, the industries, all of them are not very diverse. It definitely can vary depending on which sectors you might be looking at. But we do not reflect the numbers, at least demographically, of the United States or Canada. And so we definitely are predominantly more white male than the population would suggest if we just took a subset of the population. But the other issue is that those that might be in school are not necessarily staying in the profession and the ones that are dropping out are predominantly women and people of color. And so there's what we sometimes call the leaky pipeline, which aggravates the problems of demographics. If you're trying to get a demographic that's reflective of the general population, which you may or may not be doing, the leaky pipeline disproportionately is affecting the people that are least represented, which is not just an accident because it's harder to stay in a profession where maybe you don't feel like you have role models or you feel like systems are set up for people that don't look like yourself or that just generally there's obstacles that are either visible or invisible that you're either aware of or you're not that tends to send messages around the stereotypical idea of what is an architect or what is a contractor or what is a developer or building owner. Yeah, interesting. So, and actually I... You know, when I look at other industries, a leaky pipeline is actually a problem that many industries have. One of the parts of research that I was looking at talks about the importance of having diversity, especially in the leadership side. And so when we have a leaky pipeline, that also means that we're likely getting it. We're also having less candidates on the leadership side, right? Going up through companies across the board. Right. So you can look at a demographic of a company and you can say, okay, well, we were 50% women. And that's certainly something to be celebrated. That was your goal. 
But if you find that your entry-level people are, say, 80% women and your leadership are 1% women, that's going to send a certain kind of message. And it takes time because you are usually developing people and it takes time to get them into leadership positions. And right now, given where we've been at and all those things that are set up for women and people of color to not necessarily be present in the industry, the senior people that are women or people of color are just fewer. And really, when you start to rise up within a company with experience and in terms of title or or rank or responsibility, you're often overtapped for things like diversity committees or recruiting or serving on projects where there's some kind of public reporting, the number of minorities and women involved. So you end up often in situations where you're more overtaxed. And then, especially if you have, for example, the situation I just described where you've got 1% of women at the leadership level and 80% of women at the entry level, who's mentoring all those entry-level women? So it's something where those that are trying to represent for more or asked to represent for more are also then bearing an additional burden, which for some of us is fine and what we've accepted and what we know needs to happen. But there are times where it can feel like a lot and it's not necessarily always compensated or taken into account when workload or just even evaluations begin to happen. Yeah. So it's a cycle. Like it just keeps, you know, kind of compounds. compounds Although I would say some things are getting better. I know that in the architecture statistics, which I know better than other areas, the number of black architects has not gone up in decades. And it's still, it's like 2% or something of all the architects and not a number of native Americans is, you know, there's so few that for every time there's one retirement, you may or may not have one entry-level person coming in. So again, just the numbers for some of these groups, it's just really small. And then if you start to look again at the demographics of where are they in their career. So we see some signs that things are getting better. Like the number of women, for example, is been at 50% for a while in schools, but is not necessarily changing as quickly as you would expect as those people have been, because we've been 50% for a while. And they're not necessarily moving up and you're not starting to see the mid-level and and leadership level reaching 50% or anywhere close. Some firms are definitely making a commitment and there's ways I think that they're recruiting and attracting women and people of color. So there are definitely some firms that have figured this out more than others. But as industries, I don't think that we've really been able to say that we've moved the needle. Some of it is we've been tracking better. And we're maybe a little bit more aware of some of the obstacles. And so that I would count as progress, even if we can't count the numbers as something that's radically changed or changed enough that it even makes sense over time, given the ups and downs that might be happening in any given time that you're capturing. Yeah. And I know you did mention that you know, obviously, the architecture industry, that's where you have most experience. Do you have any sense of where kind of the building design industry sits comparative to other industries across the board in terms of diversity and equity? Yeah, actually. So the work that we were doing with the American Institute of Architects, we were really fortunate to talk to the Women's Leadership Edge group, which is out of uh, it's a law school group out of Hastings School of Law in University of California. And so they had been studying law and then also engineering. And there are similar issues in terms of number of women in school are not necessarily reflected in the numbers of of women in the senior leadership roles. And they were also doing some work with people of color. There's also Race Forward and a number of things through the um, Society of Human Resource Managers that begins to track. 
And so a lot of the research that we drew from on the AIA guides came from non-architecture, non-building industry, because the other industries have been tracking it longer. They're not necessarily seeing more success, but they've been tracking it longer. So it's not an uncommon problem. And I do think in the building industry, we also have some power differentials where subcontractors are sometimes having more people of color than general contractors, for example. And so the trades are considered different or they they do have a different demographic and they potentially have a different voice and a different role in the industry. Right. And so we talk about this, why is equity important? I mean, I really think about this, it goes across the board for all businesses. You might have a lens, especially to the design, but why is it so important that our businesses reflect the communities around us and the diversity in the communities around us? Yeah, it's a good question. And there's actually multiple ways of thinking about it. So there's a moral case that you could just say it's the right thing to do. There's a business case where you can say that there's been research that's shown that companies that have more three or more women on their boards are more creative, more likely to survive economic downturns, a number of different factors that show that they're more resilient. And you also have another business case where you're starting to see companies that are clients to our industries requesting to see the number of women or the number of people of color in the organization. You also have, if it's public projects, sometimes requirements that are put in place of number of minority and women-owned businesses that participate. So there's a number of dimensions to the business case. But the biggest answer I would give is that equity supports everyone. You know, an example that's often given, for example, is when the American with Disabilities Act happened and curb cuts started coming into play for ways that people in wheelchairs could access sidewalks and cross the street. Well, now you look at who's using curb cuts. It's people with strollers. It's people that are mobility impaired, people on bikes. And lots of people get to benefit from that, even though it was very much a more serious obstacle for someone who was in a wheelchair. There's lots of people for whom that makes a better life. There's many examples where transparency, say, in salary bands or pay scales or any of the things that relate to criteria for annual review, that when those are opaque, they, first of all, are subject very much to bias that often falls along racial or gender lines. But opaque pay scales and promotion criteria are detrimental to everyone. When people don't understand what they're being judged upon, or it's seen as some kind of black box where you just need to have some kind of inside track into things, it makes employees generally less engaged. And the more deeply an employee is engaged, feels part of something bigger and feels like they trust the system that they're working within, the much more likely they are to be retained, the more likely they are to give loyalty to recommend their firm to others, both as um, potential clients and also to be potential employees. So all of these things have a real value that you can measure in lots of different ways that have to do with just making things better for everyone, making things more clear, making it easier for people to engage, providing a culture where engagement is a very positive thing and something that everyone has an equal shot at. And I think that's something that everyone wants, regardless of what their race or gender is. Yeah, it's pretty hard to disagree with business case around equity making it better for everyone. And the curb cuts example is a great one. And there's probably many other examples where we could point to having someone with a different point of view at the table, bringing that idea forth or something that maybe 
anyone else around the table hadn't even thought about, it's important to have those points of view there. That's discussed a lot, which gets into more complex issues sometimes though, because having diversity present is not necessarily having diversity bring that creativity and innovation because it's absolutely true that diverse teams will outperform the very best of the homogeneous teams in terms of creativity, innovation, thinking in ways that are different. But you also can have diverse teams that underperform the worst of homogeneous teams if they're not managing their diversity well. Because if you just bring diversity to the table, whether it's different points of view because of their training or their gender or their background or their cultural norms, you're going to get conflict. And that's actually what is producing all that benefit. So if you don't have conflict, that means you're masking the differences. And you're saying, okay, even though you come from all these different backgrounds, we want you all just to act the same or think the same. And so anyone who comes with a different point of view is just going to be listening and like, okay, to fit in, I need to say these things. And I squelch down anything that doesn't seem to agree with that. Right? So if you're not seeing conflict, you're actually suppressing it, which in that case, why bother with a diverse team, right? Because you're actually making it harder for some people. If you bring conflict forward and you don't manage it, it's going to be detrimental and you're going to have mistrust. You're going to have less efficiency. But if you bring forth conflict in a way that's productive, that allow people the tools to really engage in it in ways that still are trusting and still provide the psychological safety for someone to say something that may not be part of what the group is is seemingly agreeing on, then having diversity present isn't necessarily going to get you that. So when you ask me what the benefits are, say, of equity, that's what that is, right? Because the benefits of diversity are nothing. You've just met your goals for certain numbers. But if you talk about the benefits of equity and inclusion, then you're talking about being able to actually use diversity in ways that will get you somewhere different than if you didn't have it there. And so to that point, I think that's a really important note that if a company is just trying to hit diversity targets, they may end up with a team that actually does work really well together, even in conflict, but that generally speaking, you have to authentically want to go down that path and be able to make, you mentioned psychological safety so that your teams can have differing points of view and actually be able to bring those to the table, feel okay bringing those to the table. That's where you're going to get your best ideas from and your best innovative work. So the warning sign for you would be if you have a diverse team, but you're hearing a lot of the same ideas, you know, to echo it sounds like... Yeah, you've probably sent the message that you want everyone to fit in with some kind of baseline that you believe is common for everybody. So you've asked them essentially to downplay any differences. I wonder if, you know, as people start to think about, and we know that firms have to actively and companies are going to have to actively start to work on their equity within their companies, they're going to stub their toe along the way. They have to know that's going to happen. So there's benefit across the board to still going down a path of really looking, I think, having a hard look internal at your company. Do you have any recommendations for companies starting to think about that? Yeah, you will make mistakes and you will have a time where your intention is not going to match your impact. And part of that is because this is just hard and we've been working in ways for so long that haven't had to think about this. And the other part of it is that everyone is so different. You can't possibly know what all of the ways that they might be receiving things based on their cultural background or experiences that they might have had. And so you can actually get paralyzed if you try to make sure that anything you say or do is going to be received really well by everyone. It's never going to be a one-size-fits-all. 
I think the important thing to realize is trying to figure out if the patterns of things, right? So if there's a pattern of certain groups of people, members of certain groups that don't speak up, if there's a pattern of people from certain groups that aren't getting promoted at the same rates, if there's patterns where there's some of the HR policies seem to be excluding certain groups, those are all things that start to cue you that there's something going on that's not necessarily biased, although it could be, but it could also just be messages that you're sending or things that just make it harder for certain groups of people to participate. I think one of the things that we talk a lot about in the guides is you have to try stuff. If you just worry so much that you're going to make mistakes, you're actually going to just be stuck and there's detriment to that as well. So some of it is knowing that you're going to make mistakes, making it clear that you can get feedback when something's not going well, and also be really clear on what your goals are. Like we are seeing this happen and so we're making this change. And then evaluating, like did the problem shift? Did we disadvantage a different group now? And in some ways, if you disadvantage a different group and it's a group that constantly gets advantages in every other place, you say, well, maybe that's okay. They can be disadvantaged in this one place because they get so many other advantages elsewhere, but you're not going to find a one size fits all. So if you approach this by saying, we're going to bring diversity and then we're going to do everything the way we've always done it, what you're probably going to find is that there are going to be patterns where it's going to work for the people that are in the dominant culture. And that who things have worked for for a long time. And that those that you bring in that may not fit that culture are may not be very successful. And so then why are they going to stay? Right. So uh, yeah, it's you have to have a willingness to try it out. Don't let sort of perfection be the stopping point because you're never going to get that right off the bat anyways if we're actually going to take action going forward. I want to go back to something I just was curious about and... The idea around equity in design and actual architecture and building types and styles, from a community standpoint, what does having a company that has diversity, equity in their firm, what does that do from a design in a community standpoint? So I would say it's broader than just when you're engaging in a community, because pretty much every building, even if it's privately owned for a fairly limited number of people that are intending for its actual you know, day-to-day use, Everything that's part of the built environment participates in the fabric of a city, say, or the infrastructure or adds to kind of the life of the sidewalk or is part of a a bigger community and says something about the community and how they can use space. So it's very rare that you have a project that really doesn't have any interaction with some larger set of community. So when we define community, it's not necessarily like a community center or even a school or a library. It's really any building has some aspect of how it engages with people that aren't part of the maybe more specific group that are the building owners. And even if you have within a private ownership, very often the owner that sits at the table is not the person that's going to be operating the building or using it day-to-day or the group that might be disadvantaged if the building doesn't work well. So there's a lot of times where even say in a hospital, you're designing for patients, that's like really patient-centered, but patients aren't necessarily going to be at the decision-making table. And you know, so you might have patient advocates or representatives of patients or things like that, but they're definitely not going to be the majority of the voice at the owner's table. 
that's appropriate, right? Because the owner's got other criteria related to the business practices and things like that. And there are people that know the technical aspects of things and medical care sides of things. So it's not like you should just turn this all over to the patients to design their own hospital. But yet you have to find ways that you're eliciting really good information about what you're not necessarily seeing. We were interviewing some of the people for the guides and there was a wheelchair user that was saying, you know, people tend to think in say public library that wheelchair users really want to be in every place that a able-bodied person can stand in. When in fact, a lot of times, if you were to interview someone in a wheelchair, they don't necessarily need to be within every book stacks. They just want the control to not have to ask someone for help. So you could do something with a retrieval system and they would be, you know, this person was saying that I would be perfectly happy if I had a good retrieval system that I could access on my own, that I didn't have to be in a position where I was asking someone for help. But I don't need to be physically in every book stack. I just need to be able to get to every book or a book needs to be brought to me. And so that's the situation where the cost to design a library where a person in a wheelchair can get to every single place that a person not in a wheelchair can get to is a great deal higher than developing a retrieval system that allows someone in a wheelchair to have the autonomy and not have to ask for help. So, you know, I think once you can find ways to ask and find ways to realize that you're making assumptions that potentially need to be questioned and whether it's because you don't look like the people or you don't have the experience. And there's tons of examples of community projects where someone comes in who doesn't know the community very well and provide something that they think the community needs based on some analysis. And then they find that they're replicating or replacing or actually doing some damage for assets that were already in the community that didn't get taken into account and built upon by the new project. So there's all kinds of reasons. And a lot of it has to do with wasted time and energy, or if you build something that you're intending. And again, it's not about intent. It's about how the impact plays out. Yeah, interesting. Just it kind of goes back into having all the right stakeholders just pulling that information to the table and understanding the, the interesting thing about design is it's an exercise you do and even building we do and but the impact of that building and design product hopefully is in service for 40, 50, 60, 80 years and right. the impact of the people who have to live in and around it and or use it right. and or operate it all of those things it's and you can't interview them all and you can't no. ask them all to vote and you can't no. find ways to survey them all. So you have to find methods that you're seeing other people's points of view. And it's actually very natural to designers to do that empathetic way of thinking where you're trying to imagine what it's like for someone else. And then again, trying to figure out information, whether you're drawing from analysis that you can do at more arm's length or whether you're doing surveys or trying to look at precedents. So these are all things that have been in our toolkit for a while. At the same time, we have to realize that there's been a lot of times where the assumptions that designers have made have really harmed communities and done build, made created buildings that have been unusable to the point that they need to be destroyed or send messages that are really not intended and not helpful around who's welcome and who's not welcome. Interesting. So just kind of switching gears a little bit in talking sort of diversity, inclusion, equity, one of the things that I've been sort of battling with is we have sort of, there's affinity groups that are formed. So, you know, there's lean-in groups, which tends to focus a bit more on women. There are, there might be groups for orientation or culture, ethnic background. So we have these, you know, affinity groups that all kind of their 
slices of what we... And someone might fit into multiple of those affinity groups they might identify with. What's your thought on affinity groups and if they help sort of... Because they're sort of a siloed piece of the whole conversation, what's your thought on affinity groups and if they help or don't help? There's a lot of research on why they help. I think I can read the subtext in your question of if we're trying to be more equitable and inclusive, is it negative to separate and highlight the divisions among someone's various identity groups? And so it is actually positive though, because you're creating a place where people are self-identifying as sharing an identity or being an ally to a particular group, and that it provides a very clear set of criteria for we are going to be talking about this from the point of view of this affinity group and that we are all here because of this identity, either because we identify with this identity group or we are allied with this identity group. And we want to know more about what this identity group experiences relative to whatever issue you're talking about, whether it's mentoring or recruiting or the assignments of jobs or whatever it is, urban design, you know, so whatever topic it is, you know, because very often I think what happens is that unofficially the dominant group is the filter that you are talking about. So like, okay, let's have a meeting to talk about HR practices. Well, likely the dominant group is going to be the majority numerically in the group and the points of view presented are going to be from the dominant culture point of view. And when you talk, have the same topic identified and you say, now we're going to talk about it from the point of view of the women or the minorities, or the people who don't have Canadian citizenship, or whatever it is, they're going to be bringing forward topics, subtopics that are very particular to them. And others are going to more quickly be able to grasp, to understand, oh, what does does this mean if I don't have citizenship? Whereas that might be a minor point in a different meeting where you haven't said transparently, this discussion is around HR policies for people with immigrant status. Right. And so it brings a transparency to this is the lens we're using to talk about this thing. It is not the definitive end of the discussion. It is we needed to sort through things because it's not going to be a unified approach, even among people that are immigrants, for example. And so you want to be able to talk through all the nuances and all the slight differences with someone who's got a US visa versus someone who's got a European visa. You know, so you want to pull forward those things. And then be able to report back, if it's appropriate, to the bigger discussion and say, okay, this is what this affinity group concluded. May not work for everybody, but this is what would work for them. In case you're curious to know, this is what would work for them. And maybe it doesn't work for someone else. And again, then you go back to those decisions where you can say, okay, this works for the dominant culture, but it really doesn't work for people with kids or it really doesn't work for women that are trying to come back to work after having kids. And so then you choose and you say, okay, well, what works for them would be this. Well, that doesn't work great for another group, but maybe we say, okay, we'll make it less comfortable for this one group because they have a lot of other things that where they are the privileged group or they're the group that benefits. And so we can have a more clear discussion about why it's benefiting one identity group versus another it doesn't feel like you're pitting one identity against another. It feels like you're understanding what that identity brings to the discussion and what they would need to succeed. And then you're not wondering, like, why do we have so few women with kids? And then it's like, well, because we made these series of decisions that we knew was going to disadvantage women with kids. And so that's where we ended up. 
right? As opposed to like, why is this happening? I don't understand. They must just not like us. Maybe we should do more picnics or whatever. You know, it's like, that may not solve your problem. And maybe it's not a problem. You know, maybe you're okay with that. Right. I've also just another sort of switching gears a little bit too. I've heard, you know, as I've been out in the industry and speaking with people in management on the topic of kind of diversity, equity, inclusion, and moving forward, I'm pretty sure there's unconscious bias, but we all have unconscious bias. I have heard some managers sort of when we talk about looking to expand either, you know, the number of women that we may be hiring or racial minorities. And I've heard people say, well, I hire the best person for the job. It doesn't matter to me, their gender, their age, their skin color. I hire the best person for the job. What would you say to that comment, knowing that we still haven't changed the metrics within our companies? What do you say to that? I have yet to meet a person that says I am biased and I do not hire because of, I just don't get along with women or I don't get along with people that have different skin colors. No one, no one intends to discriminate that I know of, right? Maybe there are some, but vast majority of people are not intending to discriminate. And if they were to see pointed out to them, there's a real pattern that over time, this is who you've hired. They would be worried potentially and trying to say, okay, how could I change that? And so if you believe that there's no bias in the way that you're interviewing and choosing a person, then potentially you need to start looking at who's your pool and who have you recruited. And maybe you need to look at your rubric for how you're evaluating those people, because it may not be something that you're doing intentionally, and it may not even be related to your unconscious bias. It may be because you're sending messages, and there's a fair amount of data out there of how job descriptions that are more based on future work is going to appeal to women as opposed to things that you've proven. And so there are some gender biases with the language you can use. There are a number of messages that people of color pick up on in job descriptions and recruiting materials. And so there's things that you can do that will just be more neutral because most people prefer to be neutral and prefer not to be sending those messages. So there's definitely resources that just point some of that stuff out to you. And then there's a fair amount of research again on how certain language in the rubrics that you might be using to evaluate people. There's a a kind of saying that women have to prove it and prove it again. So men are more often hired and promoted based on their potential and women much more on what they've done. And women, in this case, it's often compounded if you're a woman of color. And if you're a man of color, some of these things might be a little bit better or worse, depending on which bias we're talking about. There's research around if women and people of color negotiate, they're seen as much more aggressive than white men who negotiate, who are seen as entrepreneurial, right? So there's just adjectives people use to describe certain behaviors that come based on the identity of the person. And so it's not necessarily something that you can completely avoid because these are to do with societal messages that bombard us. And so it's consciously trying to see, here's the pattern of what's been happening. What can we do to correct for this pattern or try to change that pattern? And those are places that I would look for is the language in recruiting, the criteria you're using for hiring, and the pattern of what you're getting over time, regardless of what your goals are. Great suggestions. Absolutely. Do you have any, I guess, if we were to ask people from this to go ahead and take some action, do you have some, what would be your recommendation for a couple of actions that companies could take? 
to really look within and make changes from a diversity, equity, and inclusion standpoint? It is the look within, right? So that, that's what you mentioned is that is the first step is looking within. And there's some companies that have a lot more data than others. And there's some data that's out there on what's happening in our industry. I wish we had more, but we have some. And so you can figure out your own internal data and judge that against the baseline and see if this is something that you want to do or can set some goals. It's also really great when companies can share information with other companies because right now we're all in our industry a little short on information. And so seeing trends and seeing how it is relative to other peers is, I think, really helpful. A lot of the building industries have to rely on some of the corporate businesses and law firms and engineering firms that might have some data just because we haven't been gathering it that for that long. So looking within just to look at it. So demographics are really helpful to look because they're relatively straightforward to count depending on the, the legal context, right? Because in some parts of the world, you can't collect information on race. And so there's complications for some depending on what jurisdictions you're in. But generally speaking, there's demographics or something that you can start on. And then there's the potentially more difficult to measure things around the types of policies and the messages that are being sent. And so that in that case, surveys or focus groups that particularly ask groups that might not be in the dominant culture what their experiences are and getting a sense what would make it easier for them, which may not be possible to do, right? But just to find out like what would make it better. And then have discussions at the leadership level of what they're willing to do and what fits within the business plan. But I think having the clear business plan is really important because this work is too hard to do simply because it's the right thing to do. It has to fit within the larger mission and business plan of the company because it's otherwise it starts with all those good intentions. And then you set goals that maybe are going to be unrealistic or need a lot of resources, and then they fall by the wayside, becomes unclear, like, why are we doing this again? Like, I know we set these goals, but what was the purpose again? And what are we gaining from this? And unless that's really clear to people at every level, you're going to get not only potential loss of momentum, you actually are going to get pushback, where especially people who've been pretty comfortable say, why are we changing all this stuff? Like now I have to think about this hiring practice that it's been working fine. I've been great, getting great people. Why do I have to do this? And then it feels like it's changed simply to be politically correct or fit into something that was arbitrarily set as a goal. And then you actually do damage to progress because it doesn't feel like equity is helping everyone. It feels like it's just a hassle. And to get at some goal that's Pretty much everything looks the same, but your demographics are different. That's a difficult message to get people to stick with. Yeah. So really that idea of you have to be authentic with your moving forward with this. And I know that you had pointed me in the direction of, so I mentioned that you participated more contributed to the guides for equitable practice. I think that even as a, even the introduction, as you mentioned, for someone coming even from outside the design and building industry is it's a great document, the introduction just to moving forth with that. I think if a business wants to go that way, I think I would your recommendation for that is a great one. And you also point to me in the direction of Diversity Matters, the McKinsey report, which I think is useful across the board for any company. So maybe as a step, as you've recommended this look within first and then speak to some of those 
as you look at your policies and look at those maybe who people who aren't in the dominant culture and ask them and get some of that information, it's the look within first and have maybe some of that information, though that research information help you solidify the reason you're going forth so that it can be like from an authentic and genuine sort of best for your business going forward and best for the people in your company. It's very goals oriented. Yeah. And you can set your own internal goals and look at how equity relates to those goals, or you could set specific equity goals. You could also get consultants to help you kind of look at what the perception of that others have of your company in terms of equity or in terms of your whatever relative to the other goals of whether you're nimble and innovative and those kinds of things, or you can look completely within. So depending on the resources of the firm, but I think the holding up the mirror piece is important to say, okay, here's our goals and here's where we've been on those goals and to set goals that are stretched but realistic and goals that you then know are going to make a difference and then figure out what you can do for resources to make them so that you can make progress so that you can keep momentum. Because I think a lot of times this stuff is hard and it takes a long time and it takes very consistent effort at almost every level of the company. And so how do you keep celebrating intermediate goals and achievements and checking in so that you're not overly patting yourself on the back for something that was actually not that meaningful of a metric? So it's hard to do, but extremely rewarding and extremely valuable in ways that sometimes companies don't always expect they're able to achieve other goals that have to do with sustainable design or lean practice because of equity and diversity. And so there's all sorts of benefits that might be indirect that companies are seeing that just by having more discussion, having more clarity, you're able to be not only your internal goals, but your perception by others, your retention, your ability to compete for work, all of that starts to go up. Right. Well, Renee, Thank you so much. You've given me a lot to think about, including uh, you've pointed me in the direction of some really great resources. Again, the guides for equitable practice, you can Google those and find them. And also the Diversity Matters McKinsey report from 2015. I think you've shown us that diversity, equity, and inclusion is really important to our businesses and our communities. And by building companies with diversity, equity, inclusion as a value at all levels, and especially but including leadership levels, which is very important from the data. We're better able to, as companies, win top talent, improve our view of customers and what they see, employee satisfaction, and then just general decision making, which all those things lead to better returns when we can do it well. So I know everyone is busy and Renee, I know how busy you are right now. And so I so appreciate you taking the time. So thank you very much. You're welcome. I hope this is helpful for people. Thanks. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Building Good with Jen Hancock and Tim Coldwell. Learn more at www.buildinggood.ca and join us as we catch up with another inspirational leader who is building a better world on next week's episode.